um, and ask God to, to bless his word to us today. Father, we're grateful that you have spoken to us. You haven't left us in the dark, as it were. And you've given us your words and you've given us your spirit to indwell us. And you've given us each other, this community of faith that we live in. And as a result, we have great hope that your cause, your work in our lives will not fail. It will accomplish what it intends to. To transform us into the image of your son. To demonstrate to the world around us your greatness and how good your gospel is. And so we come this morning wanting to hear from you. We come this morning needing to hear from you. And so bless our time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We're going to look at this passage 14 through 29. We're studying the gospel of Mark in our Monday morning Bible study. And so this is one of those passages that just kind of jumped off the page to me and I have an opportunity to preach today and then next Sunday and we'll be using this text for both of those messages to look at. So 14 through 29, Mark chapter 9. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great cloud crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he Answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out of the boy and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And our response to this is, the grass withers and the flowers falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This is one of those gut-wrenching passages for anyone to read as you take in the descriptive nature of what's happening to this young man. Perhaps, perhaps even more so or especially for a parent as you would imagine what it would be like 
to be in this helpless situation to watch your child undergoing these demonic convulsions, as this man was saying, had lived with, in fact. The three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all have this particular account in them. What's interesting, at least it's interesting to me, is that Mark, who usually abridges and shortens his narratives, actually expands on this one. And in fact, he doubles the length of time or the, the content that he gives us and that Matthew and Luke do not. And I don't know exactly why he did that, but it tells us at least one thing, and we know this, that for some reason, this encounter that Jesus had in this situation with this man, it's important for Mark's understanding as he wants to present his picture of the kingdom of God as it comes in Jesus Christ. It's essential for him in painting this picture of who Jesus is and what the kingdom looks like when it comes. And so Mark says, I know you would anticipate me to say less, but I'm going to tell you more because this is important for me. Mark closely ties this account with the previous one, the transfiguration. I read that in our in our order of worship, the, the verses, the, the setting where Jesus goes up onto the mountain and he is transfigured. And, and these two accounts are kind of set up next to each other. And they each present, if you will, an aspect of the kingdom of God. They're set in a juxtaposition, set right next to one another to demonstrate two aspects of the kingdom of God when it comes. And Mark wants to see both of these. One aspect in the transfiguration we see is that this revealed, this unveiled glory of Jesus the proverbial mountaintop experience we see so much so that Peter in his terror says, let's just stay here, whatever this is. And we see Jesus's glory along with Elijah and Moses there. But then they come down from the mountain to the place where the king, the kingdom of God comes in a real place. The real fallen temporary domain of the adversary of God. He comes right into this situation. There's no break, although you, some of your Bibles might have a section heading, right into the reality of the demonic forces that are present in our world, in their world, into a very clear situation where destruction was intended. In my preparation for the sermon, I came across a, a reference to a painting from the early 16th century by an artist, uh, Raphael. As you know, I'm quite the artist aficionado these days. But I learned in this painting, it's called The Transfiguration. I looked it up online and found it. It's a quite a nice painting. As you could imagine, it's a picture of the transfiguration. And you have Jesus. It's elevated above the earth and glory. And there's lots of light surrounding him. And Moses and Elijah are there. And Peter, James, and John are on the ground. But what's interesting in this painting is that the bottom half of the painting of the frame depicts verses 14 through 29. It gives us the picture of the transfiguration, the glory, but then it also shows the scene where there's the arguing going on between the disciples and the scribes. And even you can identify the young man who's in convulsions in that scene. And that artist captures for us in one frame how these two are to be sandwiched together. And we, two, we see two aspects of the kingdom of God. The transcendence 
and the eminence. This is the nature of the kingdom we live. There's a sense we experience at times mountaintop moments where we see the glory and the greatness of God and we experience it only to be followed immediately by difficulties. We come down from the mountain into the reality of the world, the fallen world occupied by the forces that oppose God. Some of you know a few Last week, a group of us went to Mexico, or not Mexico, Costa Rica for a week, did some work there. It was, it was just one of those rich weeks. It was just filled with just incredible experiences. We worked hard, but the time around in our devotions and time working, it was just a wonderful time. And we all talked about how it was just this simple kind of moment in our lives that we just enjoyed. But then in returning back from the mountains of Costa Rica... And the coffee of Costa Rica, we brought some of that with us. We came back into the reality of the world that's not so simple. That's complex. That's hard. We experience the fallenness that's there. We see both of these depicted in this section. And it's typical of Mark as an author. Throughout his gospel, he sandwiches accounts together to instruct and to illuminate the kingdom of God. But also in the passage we're looking at this morning, 14 through 29, he does something too. He's sandwiching two ideas. He's addressing two issues. He's simultaneously solving two equations. Because as he comes down, he steps into a situation, there's two issues going on. He steps into this where his own disciples have failed to cast out this demon. And we have this man who has... The reality of living with the son who is taken over and oppressed, possessed by this demon. Both situations are significant. Both of them he addresses as the king. Both of them he addresses the the kingdom of God as it's established. Looks at both of these because both of these aspects, the man's situation and his disciples are, we might understand to be failure to believe. There was a failure to believe or a struggle with unbelief in both of them. There's a distinction to be made between the two, but they're both a part of what it means to be human, that we fail in both counts. And so this week, I want to look more specifically at the man and this ultimate cry, I believe, help my unbelief. And what Jesus is doing in that situation, how Jesus cares for and instructs and seeks to instill and to incite a kind of belief in this man's life. And next week we'll focus on the disciples and their failure of belief. As we look at this man and the situation, it's it's filled with this imagery of of Satan's oppression upon him. the, The description is very clear in terms of how this affected this man, this young man's life. The demonic forces are real. They're not typical of our experiences, likely. But nonetheless, we know that this is a real picture of what Satan does. The life we live, we don't see it, and we might be kind of taken in and not realize that there's a real spiritual realm that lies behind the physical. That what our eyes can't see, there's something going on there. And to this, C.S. Lewis addresses in his preface to the Screwtape Letters, our situation He writes this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. 
The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the demons, are equally pleased by both errors to hail the materialist or the magician with the same delight. And in this case, we don't have an excessive portrayal, but we see a real portrayal. And we want to take a look at this and ask the question, what's going on in this situation? My wife and daughter, a couple years ago, spent some time in Western Africa with the Jesus film in the country of Gabon. And they, on that trip, were able to kind of leave the, some of the areas they were in into the outlying remote areas. And there they kind of they saw firsthand the effects of demonic oppression as they heard stories of people. And so it's real. And yet Jesus steps right into the situation to address it for us. Throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus' encounter with the demonic, it's prevalent. And it makes sense, right? When the king shows up on the stage, guess what happens? The one who opposes him is likely to come out of hiding. And we see throughout it four different occasions of demonic oppression and possession that Jesus directly interacts with in chapter 1, chapter 5, chapter 7, and here in chapter 9, with a kind of escalating intensity to this particular account in chapter 9. And we see the escalation, the intensity as it goes up, because here we, it's, it's a young man, right? It's a boy that's being afflicted. We see that his disciples couldn't do anything about it. And we find clearly that the intent for this young man was to destroy him. And even to the very end, we see the, the account gives us this picture that, that, that those who are watching think that he's dead. But Jesus shows and demonstrates otherwise. Because we don't see Satan's presence in the same way where we live, it doesn't mean that he is not very present in our world. Seeking to accomplish the exact same ends as with this boy. He comes to, as a thief to steal and to kill and destroy. And while our eyes might not see it, it might be more subtle. It's nonetheless real in our world today. I want to walk through this. I'm going to look at this man's situation. I want to... Look at how the king steps into this moment in this void. But I want to conclude with a picture of what belief looks like, even in this man's final cry. The man's situation, 17 through 20, we see it. Verse 17, and someone from the crowd, that's this man, answered him. Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy. He fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus, and then Jesus goes on to ask this, this question. So we see what's happened that the, this man brings his own his son and Luke tells us it's his only son to the disciples. Jesus is on the mountain with Peter, James and John to cast out this demon and they're ineffective. And what happens is it provokes an argument with the scribes. And so that's what's going on when Jesus returns down from the mountain and steps into the situation. 
He tells, the man tells Jesus the condition of the boy. It's a spirit that makes him mute. But more than that, you see the descriptors. It seizes him and throws him on the ground. He, 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 he foams at the mouth. He becomes rigid. It incapacitates him. It takes over his life. Some have observed that this looks a lot like epilepsy. I suppose it's a helpful observation to some degree. The text doesn't allow us to stay there with simple nervous disorder, but rather it takes us further and explains exactly what's happening. Appears to be epilepsy. It's more than that. It's demonic. It's intentional. The desire is to kill and to destroy this young man. We learn that it happened since his childhood. We're given no explanation as to how it happened. The failure of the disciples seems to have undermined this man's faith. That somehow he's questioning now. He had brought them, he had brought his boy to this, these to his disciples. We'll talk more about that failure next week. It's difficult to imagine what it would have been like for this man watching his son rolling around the ground, foaming at the mouth. This would be a, a, com- a completely helpless situation. However, I'm quite certain that many of us have had experiences not exactly like that, but situations where we have experienced the helplessness of watching or caring for a loved one who has succumbed to the forces of evil with the same intent, the same intention to kill. We've been emptied of our resources and we experience a helplessness where the evil appears to be so overwhelming. It's not exactly like this, but it's not utterly different from the kind of experience that maybe we've experienced. But we want to ask the question, what's happening here? What, 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 what's what the demonic force is doing? The seizing and the throwing him on the ground and foaming. What exactly is the intention of the demonic forces here? And, and I think that's very simple. What Satan through his minions, intends to do. And that is to destroy and deface the very image of God from this young man. He wants to destroy him. Satan is the adversary of God Most High, and his desire is destroy to destroy the image of God from the face of the earth. And if you look in this particular moment, in this situation, guess what? By all appearances, it looks like He is being successful at doing that. This boy doesn't look like a boy. He's not acting like a human. The image of God has been taken from him. And this man experiences the helplessness. And that's what Satan is doing. Destroying, seeking to destroy. If we were to stop at this moment in time, you would, this is all we would see is this boy on the ground, the father looking on, helpless. But the beauty is the count continues on. The king who is present steps immediately into the situation, into this moment, into this void to manifest, to reveal who he is. To demonstrate what the kingdom looks like when it comes. Now, it's interesting if you like these kinds of things. This is the part in which Mark expands. The other gospels just simply say that Jesus healed the boy and moves on. 
This is where Mark wants to drill down a little bit and reveal the intimate conversation that that Jesus enters into with this man. And so Mark tells us a little more about this. And so the boy is, is brought to Jesus in verse 20. And you can see the text is clear that immediately it convulsed the boy. The spirit as it saw Jesus convulsed the boy, fell on the ground, rolling about and foaming at the mouth. This is the response of one who thought it had possession of this man, who claimed its possession, was trying to put its mark on this man, say, this one is mine, you can't have him. This response is at the presence of Jesus the King. It's intentional and it's filled with contempt. It's directed at the King and the Creator of this young man. The intensity of this moment as it walks through, as Jesus steps in to interact with him, this man, he increases to this final cry that the man will, will give. But Jesus answers, he asks the question, how long has this been happening to him? I don't know about you, but this strikes me as a little bit interesting. We're told what's happened to the boy. And then Jesus says, how long has this been going on? I have this picture in my mind of a, of a doctor kind of just evaluating the patient, going, so how long has this been happening? The gentle healer steps into the moment and he asks the man. And again, we have to ask the question, why does Jesus ask any question at all? It's not to gather information. It's rather to do something in the setting. He's not learning something he didn't already know, but he's pulling something out. He's revealing something as it relates to the need of this man's, the depth of this man's need. He enters into the man's predicament with care and compassion. He wants to know what's going on. And so he says, how long have you experienced this kind of turmoil? And the man says, since childhood, we learn it's, it's from, we don't know how long, we don't know how it started exactly. But he goes on to tell us, it's often seeking to cast him into the fire or the water in an attempt to destroy him. The man sees it and knows that the intention of this demon is to destroy his son. The man lived constantly with this reality. Having to save his son from the inter, inner destructive forces that were there. Constantly living to protect him. I don't know about you, there's an observation that's just right here on the page that the text gives us. Right in the middle of the conversation, or not in the middle, but but as that's going on, you need to remember what's going on in the backdrop. The boy is rolling around the ground in convulsions. And Jesus says, by the way, how long has this been happening? I don't know about you, but that's a little perplexing to me. That Jesus immediately could have spoken and eliminated the convulsions and expelled the demon right now. But what does he do? He wants to have a conversation with the man. And you go, what is he up to? Why doesn't he take care of it? Why does he want to have a conversation right here and now? And I don't know about you, but there's those kinds of experiences that this reflects in my own life, that in our situations of pain and anguish and suffering, in the middle of our storms, Jesus says, let's talk. Let's have a conversation. And you go, don't you care what's going on? Don't you see my son over here? 
Don't you see my situation? Jesus says, let's talk. And we ask the question, what is, what is Jesus doing? And then the issue comes to the surface, right? We see what he's doing. We get a glimpse of what Jesus is up to in this excruciating moment. He is uncovering something that the man needs to see. He's revealing his heart. He's bringing something into the open that it can be addressed. He's revealing the status of his belief. Or rather, his unbelief. He's pulling it out so it can be seen. And the man cries out, right? If you can do anything, have compassion on us. Your disciples were ineffective, by the way. They, they couldn't do this. But, but maybe you can. And I love the following line. And again, we wish we could kind of get an intonation. And Jesus says, if, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Now, we might hear in that a tone of somehow Jesus is personally offended at the lack of belief. I, I don't think if we could hear his tone of voice, that's exactly what we would hear. Partly because we know Jesus's heart. We know what he's about. He's the king. He's not offended easily by these kinds of things. He knows this man. The failure of his disciples was partially the cause of this man's weakened faith. He offers this promise. All things are possible for the one who believes. You see, it's faith that accesses the infinite resources of God. It's basically what he says. Faith accesses the infinite resources of God. Well, there's a promise that's set there. All things are are possible for him who believes. Certainly, we in our day and age, we understand how that promise is misunderstood and it's misapplied in such a way that God is the vending machine in the sky. Faith is the lever. I pull the lever. I get what I want. And we know that's not true. But it also affects the way that we still hope in God and what he can do. And so we don't want to misunderstand or minimize in any way that this promise stands. That everything is possible for the one who believes, for the one who looks to God in faith. Not as a mechanistic way to get from God, but as one who recognizes God is the only hope. The only one that we can look to. We recognize in this situation that... Jesus' desire is not to weaken this man's faith, but it's rather to incite it and instill faith and belief into him. And the way that that will happen is that it's all brought out into the open. His weakness, the deficiency, that which is lacking, is seen by him. And the beautiful part of the story, it's seen by us as well. And then verse 24. The dam breaks. The man, immediately the father of the child cried out, and some of your footnotes will have this, with tears and said, I believe, help my unbelief. It's, it's all coming rolling out, right? I can't hide anymore. Yes, you are right. I believe. Please help me in my unbelief. Please help me in all that is lacking in my life. The moment that Jesus has been waiting for in the pursuit of this man. The years of torment. The years of helplessness. Even this very moment in expectation of of his son being healed. The failure of his disciples. His boy on the ground even at this point. Jesus calls it out and holds his promise out 
and everything breaks. And he says, I've got nothing to hide. Here it is. Yes, I know that faith is that which accesses the infinite resources of God. But the fact is, I don't even have what it takes to appropriate those resources in this moment. Brutally honest. This is where it is. He lays it out there. We see that faith reveals the majesty of God when all human resources have been exhausted. Faith reveals the majesty of God when all human resources have been exhausted. And here we have what I think is a beautiful picture of what faith looks like in real life, in real time. It causes us to cry this cry, I believe, help my unbelief. We're at the very end of our resources, even at the end of our faith. These words, this prayer charts a course for our hearts to follow. Gives us a path, it gives us a pattern, it gives us a a model to follow. Because unbelief can do a couple different things that's squirrely in our own hearts. A couple different types of faith or unbelief that's seen in Scripture. There's one kind of unbelief that we see here that says, I can't. And it cries out for help. But there's another kind of belief that says, I won't. That says, I refuse to believe. There's one kind of unbelief that says, I'm helpless here. I can't muster up enough faith to get what I need, even to believe this. But there's another kind of faith that the author of Hebrews says is an evil, unbelieving heart that leads us away from from falling away from the living God. It's rebellious. It's resistant. And it's toxic to real faith. And this man gives us evidence of this first kind of helpless faith that comes. His cry is a human cry in this distress. Living in a deficit of faith is characteristic of the human experience. Living in a deficit of faith is characteristic of the human experience. We're human. We lack what we need. And so as a result, even for that, we must go to God and say, will you give me what I need to truly believe and to access what you've said? I can access the very promises of God. We don't have what it takes. This man's cry is grounded in, drenched in belief because it's honest. And most importantly, it's oriented properly around the king. It's open. It's honest. Nothing to hide. Here it is. It's oriented towards the king. The nature of this belief-driven unbelief calls us simply to raise our hands to heaven, exhausted, amply emptied, hopeless, and say, will you fill in what's lacking in my life? Our capacity is gone to believe, and we cry for God's mercy, especially at this point. And this is an act that's driven by real faith that is instilled in us. By God. I think as I read the rest of other scriptures that this prayer is a Abba Father kind of prayer. It says there's only one I can cry to, even though I don't understand my circumstances. There's one to whom I can cry out to, only one to whom I find any possibility of hope. And that is in our good Father. And Jesus responds. 
He responds to this man's cry, this brutally honest, very human cry of faith. And the power and majesty of the king is revealed when all human resources have been exhausted. I believe, help my unbelief, and he, Jesus steps in, he heals the young man. I don't know about you, but this prayer is kind of a lifeline for me in the course of my life. I'm, I'm thankful that, that the gospel, this gospel gives us this model, this picture, this pattern for us. As I look at this narrative, I find the very words that I want to emulate my life to emulate. I need especially to live out and to speak, especially in those crucial moments of my life when all of my resources are exhausted and the situation around me doesn't look so good. These very words give me a model. And here's the beauty. The words I, I can't help me help protect my heart from going down the road to I won't. I refuse to. I can't. And my helplessness is shown before God and confessed before him. And communing with him enables me then to deal with what's there instead of my heart taking that left turn and saying, I won't. I don't like this. I refuse to believe. It allows me, instead of lifting my my fist clenched towards the sky, it allows me to lift my hands and surrender and say, ah, I don't know what else to do. See, it's no formula for getting from God what we want, right? I I believe, help my unbelief. Okay, now give me what I want. No, no, that's not what it is. What this is, is the essence of true prayer. It's the essence of true prayer. It's bringing who I really am, all that I am, wide open, Roof off, walls down, nothing to hide, and confession and communion with my Father. That's what prayer is. Here it is. You have promises that you've offered. You will do something good. I know that. Here it is. I can't manipulate you. I can't pull the lever of faith and get what I want from the vending machine. But I can trust you. And it leads us down that road of true belief and it builds a foundation and a space in our hearts for what belief really looks like. This man's prayer provides a model and a pattern of belief for us and it charts the course of our heart. Mark opens his gospel with these words on Jesus' lips. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent And believe the good news. This account is all about belief. Jesus says, believe the good news. This man's prayer gives us one of the best pictures of what belief looks like in real time in our lives. And how we're to deal with the deficiencies of faith as we find them. And the good news is, our king is able to fill in that which is missing in our lives. And by the way, that is the gospel. In every place where there's a deficiency, he comes and says, yeah, I got it. And we come to him and we say, I can't. And as we do that, God says, he steps into our lives and our situation. He says, I know you can't, but I can. Let's pray. Father,
Thank you that you can. Thanks that uh, for this truth of in our own hearts is deficient to exercise faith. But even as we see that void, you step into it and you say, I will put in what's missing and it will be sufficient because of what I have done. Thank you for your life perfectly lived in belief and faith for your death, which covers our sins and your resurrection, which enables us to live in this power of the resurrection today and now. Father, I know that there are circumstances, situations in our lives where this cry is on our lips. And I pray that you would enable us as your people to pray this to you. And that you would step into each of these varied moments and circumstances in ways that are clear, purposeful, and reveal the kingdom of God as it comes into space and time in a fallen world and a broken world. And so we're, we're grateful for that truth. And I, I pray, especially I pray for Catherine and Darby Ritter and, and with all the things taking place in the next few weeks of tests and that she'll be walking through. Father, would your presence and comfort be with their family? Think of the Yagers in St. Louis. Father, be with them as well. With each one of us, help us to walk in a way that will honor you and protect us from the road that where belief becomes resistance to you. Unbelief becomes resistance, but it would be something that would lead us to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.